Good morning. I'll just give you a little history you didn't ask for. Many of you probably remember that Catherine Bates, oh, I've forgotten her middle name now. Anyway, Catherine Bates wrote that song, America the Beautiful. What you may not know is that she actually visited Pike's Peak before writing it. So when she writes Purple Mountain's Majesty, she's thinking of the scenes and the things that she saw from the top of Pike's Peak. Which, of course, if you're up there at Pike's Peak, you can see the fruited plains as well as the Purple Mountain Majesties. Okay, I don't know why, just somebody needed to hear that. <laughs> uh, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Laying up treasures for in heaven and the section, and then we'll, we're going to go all the way through the end of chapter 6 today, which include this next section of do not be anxious. And uh, we'll see if we can see if we can come up with something that will enlighten us about where we are today and why we're here. So let's start in chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about the, your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Lord, we sit here, stand here this morning, coming into your presence, asking for you to be present with us, knowing that we are often a people of anxiousness. 
agitated and irritated before we even got here to church this morning, for at least some of us. Worried about tomorrow while we're sitting here in church this morning. So Lord, we pray that you would use your spirit to open our eyes, to open our ears, and most importantly, Father, to open our hearts and where needed to mend and heal our hearts so that we will walk and live as those who truly do trust you and know that you are caring for us and providing for us all that we need. And we thank you because you love us more than the birds of the air and more than the flowers of the field. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So laying up these treasures for ourselves. Notice I thought it was fascinating as I was studying this passage It wasn't a do lay up treasures or don't lay up treasures. It wasn't this contrast of either do it or don't do it. It was do it, but do it in the right place and do it for the right thing, right? So when we start to recognize that, we then begin to realize that this really isn't about money when he's talking about laying up treasures. It's about the attitude of our hearts is what this is really about. Imagine that. Jesus focusing on the attitude of our heart. Who would have thunk it? But instead, we tend to get focused on the money side. And we forget that that's not what this is really about. So it then raises the question, where do we focus our resources for the most gain? Which one are we focused on? And why is that our focus? The place we focus tells us what we value the most. I mean, it tells us where our trust truly is and whom we trust the most. In fact, I think the main point of this whole section of 19 through 24 is verse 21. For or because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's really the focus of Jesus's whole dissertation here in verses 19 through 34. We could even make the case, I think, that all of chapter 6 is about this one thing of where your treasure is. Because where my treasure is determines how I give to the needy from the beginning of chapter 6. Where I put my treasure determines on how I pray to God. And also my attitude towards fasting is based on where my treasure is. If my treasure is in my belly, I'm not going to fast. And you guys can look at me and know that I'm not good at fasting. I'm glad some of you laughed. I don't know, maybe some of you felt triggered when I said that. Sorry if I I did that. (laughs) So this whole idea, and what's really other fascinating is, is when we look at the original language, when Jesus says here in verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, there is absolutely no question. This is a command. This isn't like a good teaching he's giving in other places. This is like, don't do this and do do this. These are instructive commands that he's giving us there in verse 19. And so we just can't sort of like take it or leave it when he gives it as a command. Okay, but then it really doesn't need to be a command because I don't know about you guys, but I don't really have to be commanded not to be anxious. I actually don't like being anxious and worried and all twisted up in knots. I just need a reason not to. 
I've got all my reasons to be worried, anxious, and twisted up in knots. How about giving me some... Jesus, thank you for the command not to worry. Would you mind helping me with that one? Starting with a few reasons not to worry. And guess what? He actually, actually, he just goes and does that right in these next several verses. He gives us the reasons not to worry. Because what can you do? This is a little bit getting into the next passage, but the reasons he gives are like, well, can you add anything to your life by worrying? No. In fact, medical science teaches us very clearly and unambiguously that worrying takes away. It shortens our lives. So worrying is not adding to it, it's taking it away. Well, can you actually really affect the outcome of things by worrying about it? No, because that energy being sucked up by worrying is not being utilized to actually do something that will change the outcome. And that's even over the things you actually have control over. The reality is, is the majority of the things that occur around us and in us and to us, we have very little control over. As a friend of mine likes to say and quotes often when we talk about the subject of being in control is control is an illusion. You're never, ever really in control. You just think you are. I mean, I'm driving. Just think about this for a second. You're driving down Perry Street in your car. Are you in control? Sort of, right? I'm in control of the car. and I'm in control of whether I'm going faster than my skills and ability to control it exist but that's pretty much the end of my control am i in control of the car coming at me on perry street no am i in control of what they're doing in that car no am i in control of keeping them on their side of the road no am i in control of the hole that suddenly showed up there that wasn't there yesterday morning No. Control is often an illusion, but yet we exercise it. We try to exercise it primarily because we're afraid of not being in control. And let's be honest, that fear of not being in control comes from some pretty good places. I was not in control and somebody hurt me. Therefore, the solution to me not being hurt anymore is to be in control. I will control you so that you don't hurt me. But what's the problem with that? Well, yeah, beside the illusion that I can't really control you, what's the problem with that? I am not really worried about you getting hurt. All I care is that you don't hurt me. And if my controlling you hurts you, oh, well, too bad to be you. That's part of the problem. And it's one of the reasons I think that the Lord hammers at us about trying to be in control of other people, especially, and recognizing what he's saying to us. Don't worry. Don't fret. And then he goes into this example of the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, Your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? What are you talking about, Jesus? 
I mean, that is the most goofy thing I've ever heard. That makes no sense. Because I have bad eyesight, I have a bad heart. That makes no sense, Jesus. But that's not really what he's saying. I mean, it just, it sounds weird to us because we don't think that way. But in the mind of the ancient Semitic person, eyes were a window into the soul. For us, it's kind of like the, the closest equivalent I can come to that we can sort of grasp is to read someone's face. You notice how when you, you're, you're, you're speaking to someone and you say something, the reaction on their face to what you've just said, you can read that and it tells you something about what's going on in their heart by the reaction they put on their face. That's what it's like. It gives us a sense of what's in their soul and their heart because of that expression. And for the Semitic person, that same idea and concept was expressed through the idea of the eye being a lamp to the body and a window into the soul. Let's take a second and just drop back to Deuteronomy chapter 15. So if we start there, we look in verse 7 of chapter 15. It says, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Verse 9, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. What Moses is referring to is the year of Jubilee. There was a there was a seven year period where you would be forgiven of debts, and then a year of Jubilee when all debts were forgiven, an extra special portion. And he's saying here, you know, you had to give to someone. And he's saying the danger is, as you come up on the end of this seventh year period, or even more so to the year of Jubilee, that you look and go, wait a minute, if I help him out here in six months, the seventh year ends, and then he's going to be free of his debt. He's not going to pay me back. And you say, no, 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 I'm not helping you because we're six months from the end of the seventh year and the year of freedom. God is saying to the Israelites through that, don't, 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 don't do that. Don't fall for that trap of looking at this and saying, well, hey, wait a second. I can't help him because he's not going to pay me back. Right? Instead, he says, don't look with the eye grudgingly on your poor brother. That's this idea that the eyes are a window into the soul. That his eye that looks grudgingly reveals the grudge in his heart. And that's what Jesus is getting at here with this idea of the subject of the eye. So Jesus is tying the attitude of our hearts towards God and others with how we use money because the reality is our checkbooks show what we believe and what we really value. It's an embarrassing statement that's true we can fool ourselves all day long about what we say and even believe is important to us but the checkbook tells us the real story i have lots of things i believe intently about well let's does does the way i use my money reflect that 
sort of, sometimes, occasionally. Okay, never, ever. You, you people are so hard to get along with. You just don't ever relent when I'm telling a lie. That was supposed to be funny too, right? You didn't even say anything. I did it all. I told it myself. It tells us what we value because we live in a worldview and a culture where money is a measurement of value and how we use our money shows what we value. That's why I was so impressed with the budget of this church. How much do we give to missions percentage wise? 25 at least. That's a lot more than many other churches. And that's a sign of what this church values. This church values seeing the gospel spread beyond the walls and the streets of Castle Rock to the uttermost parts of the world. I don't know about you, but when Stephanie was standing here a few minutes ago reading the stories of these baptisms from the Punjab, I was like, yes, yes. It was fantastic. It was a thrill. Why? I love watching people get dunked. It, no, no, I never, you know, I go to the fair and watch the dunking booth. I don't. I don't go watch the dunking booth. I walk by it and I just keep moving. I have no particular thrill from watching someone drop into a bucket of water. Nothing there is exciting to me about that. But I get excited about baptisms because of what they reveal, what they show, because the baptism is the outward sign of the inward change that this person's had and their commitment to Jesus. So I was like, yeah, that's fantastic. I almost wanted to go there so I could just watch him do it. But I don't want to ride a plane for 20 hours just to go watch somebody get baptized. I'd rather just do it here. What we value is revealed by how we, not just our money, but all our resources. Right? Remember, when Jesus is talking here, he's talking about building up treasures. And treasures come not just from how we invest and spend our money, but how we invest and spend our time and our talents and our skills and abilities. There was a time when I knew everything to the most intricate details about every major driver and racing team on the NASCAR circuit. I grew up in the deep south. I grew up sitting on the couch listening to the races on the radio every Sunday afternoon. And I just became enthralled with it. So much so that when they finally started televising the races, I was watching the race every Sunday. I even would hurry home from church on Sunday afternoons just so I could be sure to catch the whole race. I didn't even want to miss the dropping of the green flag. And most people think, well, the only part that's really fun to watch are the wrecks and the finish. You know, the wrecks in the last five laps are the only part that's worth watching. Not me. I want to see it all. I could tell you things about NASCAR, the drivers, the racing teams, what they did, what they didn't do, what their styles were, what their habits were, where they were good, where they were bad, 
from the 1980s. I couldn't tell you a lot about Christian history, though. I mean, I knew the church I came from, and I knew its history. I knew the church I was in, and it was history. That's it. I didn't know how Baptist churches came to exist in America. Had no clue. And didn't really care, to be honest. Those were the things I valued. But then the Lord, in his mercy and kindness, began to show himself to me. And I found church history more interesting than racing history. And slowly he became to recognize that I had turned racing into an idol. Just watching NASCAR races had become an idol. (laughs) I even remember one time, we didn't get out of church as quickly as we should have, thanks to that long-winded pastor and my wife wanting to talk to everybody. And children that ran around like cats instead of getting in the car. So I had to turn the radio on and listen to the start of the race. Nobody could talk in the car on the way home from church because I wanted to hear the race. Oh, that was not one of my better days. But it was one of the things God used to remind me or show me where my treasures were being built and invested in. You know, most of the guys that that I could tell you everything about their lives, they're dead now. Most of them are gone. Why? Why would I do that? Well, one of the reasons is because it was easy to avoid God if I'm focused over there. If If I'm all in on NASCAR, I don't have to deal with him. You stay over there, I'm over here. That's what we do too. We get we we get drawn into the to the into a distraction. This is a way for me to be distracted from God because I don't want to deal with him. I don't want anything mm. Sunday morning, I'll come give you I'll give you a couple hours on Sunday. Okay? Let's make a deal. We'll make a deal, God. I'll give you a couple hours on Sunday and how to be a good person during the week and you leave me alone and I'll leave you alone. But that's not the way it works. Why? Why is God not okay with making that deal? Because he loves us too much to make that deal. He loves us too much to let us drift and live in a distraction that is ultimately unfulfilling and empty while having nothing to do with him which is completely feeling and fulfilling in our heart, mind, and souls. That's why he does this. In fact, he he even gets to the heart of it here in verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money, or another way to translate this would be God in possessions. This word, the word in the original doesn't just include the word money, it includes everything, all of my money and my possessions. Can't serve both. Kind of the double meaning here is that in one sense, 
money is an idol, our possessions are an idol, and we put our trust and focus on our idol. Then in another sense, it's the about trusting God versus trusting in ourselves, right? I mean, if I'm all wrapped up in what I'm treasuring, I'm really trusting my own skill and ability to acquire it. Which, except for a few things, I'm not very good at. Whereas, if I'm not putting my trust there, but instead trusting in Him, then I'm really trusting in Him for everything. Okay, well, mostly everything. Okay, some things until I realize I can't do it myself, then mostly everything I trust Him for. Remember what Paul told us in First Timothy chapter 6. Money isn't evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. It's not a bad thing for Christians to have financial resources. Like, I like good food and good clothes, just like everybody else. I really don't enjoy the feeling of burlap. I grew up working with burlap a lot in my farming community. And I thought, whew, I never ever want to wear pants made of burlap. At the very least, give me some cotton, Lord. Right? I don't have to have silk pants, but if you want to give me those, I'll take them. But just please, not the burlap. That's an unpleasant feel. But if I obsess with that, because I'm afraid the Lord will ask me to wear burlap, if I'm afraid of that and start obsessing over it, Now I'm trusting in myself because I can't trust him. Why? Why would I do that? Why would I worry that he's going to ask me to wear burlap and think I can't trust him to give me cotton? Why? Well, like everybody else, at some point in my life, something bad happened and I thought, oh, God, I can't trust God to take care of me and protect me because he didn't in that moment. But that's not true. I experienced those bad moments or that bad traumatic experience and filtered it through this lie that I cannot trust God. Therefore, I have to rely on myself to protect myself. And therein really comes the heart of all this about being anxious, about where we focus and build up our treasures is who am I really trusting And why am I not trusting God? Because I've believed a lie. I believed a lie because of something that happened to me that I can't trust Him. But yet, many years, sometimes decades later on the other side of this, I recognized, oh, He was protecting me. He just wasn't protecting me the way I wanted him to. Right? I wanted him to protect me so that nothing bad happens to me. Yet the bad things that happened to me shaped me and molded me. They were part of his tools to turn me into the empathetic, humble person. Well, to the degree that I'm empathetic and humble. And I'm not very good at those, but to those degree that I am what I am, 
He used those to bring me that way, to make me into that. I mean, I, I really, I was thinking about this the other day, this last night, this morning, within the last 12 hours, I was thinking about this. They were a gift. Can you, well, yeah, you probably can, but can you imagine the kind of arrogant, hard to be around person I would be if he had not used those traumatic experiences to humble me and to mold me and make me more empathetic to people who've been through difficult things. I mean, I'd be, I can only imagine, I can, I mean, you probably don't have to imagine very hard, but I can only imagine how arrogant I would be, how prideful I would be without them. So he used them for a purpose. Once again, his word is true. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes so that we may be conformed into his image. Anxiousness. I got I, I hammered on this pretty hard back on April the 24th. So if you really need a long explanation about anxiousness, go back to the April 24th sermon. Dane's got it on the website. It's really fantastic. It's just super good. It's way better than anything I could do today. So I won't overdo it here, but the point of this is that God knows what we need, when we need it, and why we need it. I mean, we've not, most of you have not really had a time to, for us to talk about my past, but my younger brother also serves in ministry. It was kind of it's one of those weird things where the oldest brother and the youngest brother got called into pastoral ministry, and that was really kind of weird, the, book, the two bookends. Like, okay, I just thought you should know that. I don't know why, but... And I was, we were talking about this one time, and Travis said to me, this, you know, this cliche, right? The problem with cliches is they're cliches. But yet they're cliche-ish because, and they're popular, and because they have elements of truth in them. And he was like, God's provision is never late, rarely early, and most often just in time. Oh, I hate that one. I hate it because it's true. I really want everything to come early, right? I want plenty. I want the checking account full long before I need to start writing bills. But that's not often how it works. Most of the time, money shows up just before it's time to write the bill. It's like, oh, great. Finally, some, no, we got it right. Fine, okay. His provision is given to us when we really need it. Sometimes he gives it early. But most of the time, it's when we really need it. And that's not just true about finances. It's true about our emotional and spiritual needs, too. I mean, everybody in this room, look, I'm looking around, and the exception of Philip, everybody in this room is old enough to have gotten beat up at least once. Some very traumatic experience. What are you doing here? Why didn't you turn into the atheist like so many others who go through a traumatic experience and decide, well, if God didn't protect me here, he just doesn't exist. What makes you different from them? What makes you different from the atheist and the agnostic? 
after going through a traumatic experience. Because God provided for you in that moment as we were starting to feel that in our hearts and souls and start to drift down the path of atheism, he provided a correction. Sometimes it was something else difficult to jerk us back onto the correct path. Sometimes it was a gentle, friendly sliding us back off the path of atheism. In that moment when you needed it, he provided it. This is no different. See, God knows what we need and when we need it. Our problem is, is we don't. We think we know when we need it, but we don't. He does. Look, I fully understand the pressures of running out of money before you run out of bills. I I fret over money just like everybody else. And that fretting makes me stop, sit down, and talk with God about what's going on. What? Okay, Lord. Okay, you know, I mean, I don't have to tell you this. Therefore, the only reason I'm telling you this is because you need me to tell you this for myself. I got a problem, and you know what the problem is. I don't have enough money this month. What's going on? What, you, what am I supposed to do now, Lord? Now what? Right? That usually comes right before so what? Now what? My fretting shows who I am trusting, or more accurately, it shows who I am not trusting. I think the key in this passage from 25 through 34 is verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Okay, Lord, what am I supposed to do? Well, whose kingdom are you seeking? Thank you very much. I appreciate your interest in national defense. We'll take it under advisement. Next question. What has God called you and me to as our calling for the kingdom of God? Am I focusing on that when I'm asking him, Lord, what am I going to do about these bills? No. Now, look, we all recognize that this is a legitimate problem that we've got to deal with. The problem is, is I'm fretting over it, anxious and worried over it, which means I am not doing what God created me to do. I know this may be hard for some of you to believe, but God created me besides to have fellowship with him and to know him for preaching and teaching. And when I'm paying bills, Amy will tell you, when I do that, I'm not very godly. I'm very humanistic. It makes me uncomfortable. I don't like it. And so when I become, just like everybody else, when I become uncomfortable and have to do something I don't like, I stop being godly and I start being very humanistic. I become very worldly, not very otherworldly. I lose my focus on the kingdom. And when we lose our focus on the kingdom, we lose our freedom. Think about that for a second. Yours and mine's freedom. And I'm not just talking about social political freedom. Our freedom is lost when we lose our focus on the kingdom. Hand is often the case when I'm wrapped around the axle. I'm not focusing on the kingdom. I'm focusing on my fiefdom. 
This is my kingdom and these things are messing with it. Okay, my kingdom is really very worthless and I'm losing my freedom by focusing on my fiefdom. And then Jesus tells us this, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I know some warts will respond. So see, see, even Jesus says something, some things are to be worried about and fretted over. No, 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 no. That is not what he's saying. Massive face plant. No, no. That is not what Jesus is saying. What he is saying is that we've got enough to keep ourselves busy and occupied with the real issues and places our attention needs to be on today. That's what sufficient for the day of the troubles means. The things I need to be focused on and actively doing about are sufficient to keep me occupied for the rest of the day. Not worrying about what tomorrow's needs are going to be. But I got to think about them. Sort of, yes, it's true. We do need to think about these things. But ultimately, we recognize that Jesus is the only one that's going to make those provisions and make those things come about or not come about. So what? So what? Don't worry, be happy. Look, the problem with that song, right? Everybody, I mean, everybody heard that song the second I said that phrase, right? Don't worry, be happy. The problem with that song is it doesn't give me a reason. It doesn't give me, it doesn't give me an anchor to be attached to for happiness and not worry. So here it is. Be happy, don't worry, because you're happy in our Savior and Redeemer. Look, rejoice that the very hairs of our heads are numbered. And rejoice and be happy that we are worth far more to our Father in heaven than the birds of the air and the columbines on the mountainside. As glorious, as amazing as those things are, He values us more than them. I can be happy in that. I can... I can trust in that father who delights in us that much. The other one is Jesus is worthy of our trust. He cares more for us than we can understand. His love for us is so great. He shed his blood on a Roman cross to redeem us and claim us as his own. He he would never love us that much than leave us naked, ashamed, and alone. Don't worry about the food you're going to eat. Don't worry about the clothes you're going to wear because I love you too much to leave you naked, hungry, and alone. The financial worries and anxiety of this life are allowed by him for a purpose. They're showing us where we're not trusting him. In these moments of crisis that lead us to worry, that's when he displays his great power and might. Because without them... How would he show us how much he loves us and how all-powerful he is if it wasn't for these crises where there's no natural outcome favorable to us? And then he steps in with a supernatural outcome that is. He can't be a miracle worker without a miracle need. Do you ever think about that? I want Jesus... 
There's a song out there, he's a miracle worker. Well, the other side of that coin is there has to be a miracle need for him to be a miracle worker. So, it's very tempting to encourage you to this way. When you see a need that requires a miracle, praise God for the miracle he's going to send. Just don't predetermine what that miracle is. Give him the freedom to choose what the miracle will actually be. Remember that all the fretting and worries of this life will be wiped away in eternity. Ultimately, this is the end of the story about why we don't worry. It won't matter. When we get to heaven, even all the legitimate ones here on this earth, like the worries we have for our loved ones who are still separated from Christ and facing an eternal separation from God if they do not trust in Christ, all of that will be wiped away. All the sorrow of the worries and the frets over the things that we fret and worry about, all of it wiped away in eternity. We'll never, ever feel those ever again when we see his face. Don't worry. Be happy in our Savior, in our Redeemer, who rejoices over us and loves us this much. That's all I've got for why you shouldn't worry. Jesus loves you this much. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for loving us so much that you've set us free, free from the condemnation of sin and death. You've set us free from the chains that bind us in this world. And you will set us free from the chains that tie us to this world. Praise you, Father, that you have loved us enough to make us your people and draw us into your holiness and will one day deliver us into your eternal glory and spend eternity with the glorious, joyful bliss of your face and worshiping you uninhibited by all the stuff and the things that hinder us here. Thank you for what you're doing in us now in preparation for that day. And from this moment till that day, Lord, continually show us what we need to see about you and build our faith and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.